for joining us this morning, and uh, we continue this morning on our, in our series in the book of Acts. So we took a break from the book of Acts as we uh, went through the study on elder-led congregationalism, and I'm pleased to announce to the church that the members voted for elder-led congregationalism and our new constitution, so we are praising the Lord for that as we move forward as a church in that direction. So today, we are going back to the book of Acts. We are in chapter 12 this morning, Acts chapter 12. So if you remember, the book of Acts, also called the Acts of the Apostles, was written to provide a history of the early church. And it's been exciting to see how the church has grown in this particular book and how the church has developed and how the church has been faithful to the, the Great Commission. And that's the emphasis of this whole book, is the fulfillment of the Great Commission through the local churches. And in our study of Acts so far, we've been encouraged by the, the power of the gospel as it spreads throughout the world and as it transforms lives. We saw in chapter 11, the beginning of the first international multi-ethnic church in Antioch. Um, outside, remember the church in Jerusalem was the Jewish church. The church of Antioch was the first multinational international church. But today we see how the Word of God continues to grow and how it continues to multiply despite the persecutions and despite the, the trials and despite the, um, the problems that they will be facing. So the title of my sermon this morning is the unstoppable gospel, the unstoppable gospel. So if you return with me, we will read from verse 1 to verse 25, Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, Bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angels was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. 
And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what he had, of what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to, to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. Because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give the glory, did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's pray and ask for God's blessings on the word this morning. Father, we do thank you that we can open your word today. Thank you, Lord. We know that it has been preserved for us. It has been inspired. And these very instances have been recorded for us to learn from. And I pray that you would teach us as a church this morning. Teach us, Lord, the very purpose for which you have for us as a church. We pray that we would be hearers of your word, that we would not just um, be hearers, but doers as well. Or that we would respond in faith as you require of us, Lord. And that you would move amongst us today for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So you may be familiar with the name Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche, am I saying it right? Nietzsche? He was a 19th century German philosopher. And he despised Christianity. And he is still quoted today by many modern philosophers and psychologists. But he called Christianity the religion of weaklings. And he devoted his life to fight God. He was fighting the gospel. And for many, many years, he was a, a proponent, an outspoken proponent of Christianity. But eventually he pushed himself, really, over the edge, and he spent the last several years of his life insane. Another Nobel Prize winning author, Ernest Hemingway, he considered himself living proof that someone could successfully reject the gospel and fight against God and there would be no consequences. And he boasted, in fact, of leading a very decadent life without any consequences from God. And the guilt of his sins eventually caught up with him 
and he put a shotgun to his head and he killed himself. Rejecting the gospel and fighting against God eventually cost him his, his life. And there are many biblical examples of those who tried in vain to fight against God and the gospel. Pharaoh is the first of many kings or other rulers in the Old Testament who thought because of their elevated position, because of their earthly power and authority, that they did not have to bow down to God. Um, we see in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. In verse 17, All the nations are as nothing before Him, and they are accounted by Him as less than nothing and emptiness. And even these Old Testament rulers thought that somehow they could match up against God's eternal power, only to discover this truth that we read about here in the Bible. But in the New Testament, there is one family of rulers which we're going to look at this morning, who really stand out against their battle against God and the rejection of the gospel. And that family is the Herods. The Herods. And the patriarch of the family was known as Herod the Great. Um, that's a pretty humble title, isn't it? <laughs> He was the Roman ruler of Judea and then of Palestine from 47 BC to um, just after Christ's birth. So the Roman Senate dubbed him King of the Jews. And he was a bloodthirsty ruler who even had one of his wives um, and her mother and three of his sons put to death, killed. And we remember he was also known for the murder of all the innocent young male children near Bethlehem as he sought to kill the true king of the Jews, Jesus. So Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, and he ruled Galilee during the time of Jesus' ministry. He is the Herod that had John the Baptist put to death, and also who questioned Jesus um, after his crucifixion. But Jesus would not answer any of his questions. But in this chapter, Luke will introduce us to King Herod Agrippa I who ruled from AD 37 to AD 44. And he was the grandson of Herod the Great, and Paul later stood trial before his son, Herod Agrippa II. So my first point this morning is from verse 1 to 4, and that is people and pain. People and pain. So verse 1 says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. So towards the end of chapter 11, we saw the love of the Antioch church. Remember, we saw the, the, the racially mixed church in Antioch. Remember, there was a famine in Jerusalem, and the Antioch church sent a love gift to help them during this terrible time. Um, but now, notice here in chapter 12, the contrast between this love-filled church in Antioch and the hatred of Herod and the Jews in Jerusalem for the church there. And Luke points out that 
Herod's mistreatment of the church happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was the Passover. And that the unbelieving Jews were pleased. They were pleased at what was going on. Something very wrong there, isn't there? When a religion is pleased about the murder or the killing of other people. But Herod was a typical politician. When he was in Rome, he lived like the Romans. And when he was in Palestine, he lived like the Jews. He wanted to please the Jews. And he observed the Jewish feasts and he observed the, the sacrifices. And he knew that to keep Rome happy, he had to keep the Jewish people happy. And he viewed the Jewish Christians as disruptive to his, his rule and his kingdom. He didn't want this new sect um, of Christians to disturb the peace that he had worked so hard as a politician to establish. And so what he does, he arrests a number of the Christians. And we see in the first opening verses, he, he beheads James, the apostle. This is the first time and only time in the Bible that we see the record of an apostle's martyrdom. Nowhere else do we have any other record of the apostle's martyrdom. But when he sees the favorable outcome, when he sees how happy the Jews are in response to his violent act, he plans to do another beheading. And he arrests Peter and plans to behead Peter as well. And look, the historian records this martyrdom for us. In fact, he's the only apostle that I, that I mentioned that is recorded in the Bible. We have history to record for us the other um, martyrdoms, but James is, is recorded here in the Bible. And this is the James um, who was the brother of John, um, whose mother came to Jesus. Remember when um, she asked Jesus, who was going to sit on his right side and whether her children could be on the left and the right side of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. This is the James and John that, that Jesus dubbed the brothers, or the sons of thunder, um, because of how zealous that they were. This is the James and John that had the high privilege of witnessing the transfiguration of Jesus. They were in the inner circle of Jesus. And Herod has him beheaded with the sword. I don't know if we can fully really identify or relate to the pain and the sorrow that the early church must have been feeling during this time. I don't think we could fully understand the grief that must have swept over them in the church in Jerusalem when they heard of James's execution. I'm sure the Emotions that they had were mixed with fear and grief. And of course, not knowing what lay ahead for them as they see one of their very beloved leaders executed. But Herod's rampage was, was not over. Verse 3 says, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Remember, these are the unbelieving Jews. The haters of Christ. And Herod is driven here by his, his lust for power and popularity among the people. And when he sees that killing one of the apostles makes the people love him more, he decides, well, let's make it two apostles. Let's double the love. 
And he uses people in his game. His game of pride. And his game of popularity. Just like any other politician does. And Peter is arrested. And no doubt Herod's intention was to kill him. Just as he had killed James. But at this point, maybe you are asking, well, why would God allow his own people to go through so much pain? Or maybe you're asking, why didn't God stop Herod from these evil deeds? God had the power to, why didn't he? Well, before we answer that, look at, uh, look at Psalms. Look at Psalm chapter, 20, uh, Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Let me just read David's words as he answers this question. In his, in his questioning, David says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. I mean, this is a question even David was asking, but answering as he, as he was praying here. We need to remember that no wicked act, not even the slaughter of the righteous, the death of the righteous, takes place apart from God's sovereign will. I think there are two practical lessons here that we can learn from. Maybe three. Number one, we're not God. <laughs> we are not God. We are not sovereign. God is. Number two, those who teach that it's always God's will to deliver us from sickness, tragedy, and death are false teachers. That's not what the Bible teaches. You know, the so-called word of faith movement today, they teach that deliverance from any type of trial is ours if we simply proclaim it by faith. And if we're not able to come out of that trial, or if we're not able to overcome that sickness, it's because our lack of faith. That's a false teaching. And they blatantly state that God must obey us when we speak a word of faith. And if you are not healed, then that's your problem. It's not God's problem. And none of these false teachers even themselves, are able to avoid death. None of these false teachers are able to avoid disease and sickness. Thirdly, God does not love us less when He allows us to go through tragedy. God does not love us less when tragedy and trials enter into our lives. There's no doubt God loved James. We know He did. We know Jesus did. He loved James and John just as much as he loved Peter. But he allowed James to die and his brother John to mourn the terrible loss of his brother. But at the same time, he delivers Peter. And he offers no explanation in this passage. The death of James did not hinder the spread of the gospel. The death of James did not hinder the plan of God. God used this for His purpose. And perhaps He was teaching the early church that they need to trust God and not people. Even when they don't understand what God is doing. 
But whatever the lesson, John and the rest of James's family would have been greatly mistaken to conclude that somehow God did not love them as much as he loved Peter. As someone has observed, you know, we must always interpret our circumstances by God's love. Not God's love by our circumstances. Can I repeat that? We must always interpret our circumstances by God's love. Not God's love by our circumstances. So the death of James at the hand of Herod teaches us that although God is almighty, He does not always prevent bad things happening to His children. In the middle of this pain, in the middle of this conflict, while the leaders in this government are persecuting the church, what is the church's response? What do we see happening here? Well, Acts 5 tells us, while Peter was kept in prison, sorry, Acts 12 verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The church's response is praying. That's my second point. We see power and prayer here from verse 5 to verse 19. And all the combined power of the world really pales in comparison to the power that we have access to through prayer. And prayer is mighty because it connects us to our mighty God, our all-powerful God. But maybe you're asking, if God does not always prevent bad things happening to us and doesn't answer our prayers according to our wishes, then why do we even pray? Why do we even need to pray? Or why do we need to pray when God already knows what we need? I think a major part of the answer is, just like the early church learned, is that we need to depend on God. We need to be dependent on Him and not man. We need to be totally dependent on the Lord. Now the Lord has promised that when we ask for things that are in accordance to His will, He will give us what we ask. We read that in 1 John chapter 5. But sometimes He delays His answer according to His wisdom and for our benefits. And that's the lesson we need to learn. We are not God. We are not sovereign. He knows what is best. And we have God's promises that our prayers are not in vain. Even if we do not receive specifically what we asked for. And in these situations, we are to be diligent. And we are to be persistent in our prayers. And prayer should not be seen as, as our means of, of getting God to do our will or to change His mind. But rather, it should be seen as a means for us to change our minds. As a means of getting God's will done on earth, not our will done on earth. And God's wisdom far exceeds our own wisdom. We don't understand why God is allowing even this coronavirus to happen, isn't it? You think about how our lives have been made complicated because of it. We don't understand it. But we need to trust that God has a plan. We need to trust that God is wiser than we are. 
And we need to trust the very character of God, that He is sovereign, that He is all-powerful. And notice what happens when the church prays diligently and persistently. Peter is literally touched by an angel. Look at verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Notice here, Peter was sleeping. That's pretty amazing when you think about it, isn't it? The eve of his execution, and what is Peter doing? He's sleeping. I mean, that's pretty much his character, isn't it? When he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus was praying, what was Peter doing? Sleeping. Look at verse 7 there. Look at verse 7 to verse 11 in Acts chapter 12. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. But he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. Of its own accord it just opened. Notice that. And went out, and they went out along one street, and immediately the angel left him. I think this must have been totally the upset of the century, isn't it? You've got the earthly power of King Herod with all of the, the Roman soldiers at his disposal, and all the, the will of the Jewish people in Jerusalem behind Peter. And yet what is happening? They are praying. They are really upset. The whole Roman Empire and, and Herod are upset by this timid group of Christians praying. His whole plan is spoiled by this timid praying church. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 12 there. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. How did such a rem remarkable deliverance take place? I mean, an outside observer of this contest between you know, Herod and the church would have concluded that there would be no contest. You have this persecuted church and you have this King Herod, supported by the Roman government. What type of contest is that? But at the end of the day, notice what has happened here. Peter is free. The church is amazed. The church is encouraged. And Herod is scrambling here for answers. Herod cannot explain what has just happened. 
When you get to the end of verse 4, this is not how you think the story is going to end, isn't it? But of course, the difference is verse 5. The difference is verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Prayer made the difference. In earnest prayer, diligent prayer, persevering prayer. And I think the, the reason the church was persevering in their prayers because of this 11th hour crisis that they found themselves in. And think about the times when you have prayed earnestly. It's not when everything's going fine, is it? It's not when everything is good. It's when there's a crisis. There's nothing like an 11th hour crisis to get us on our knees and to get us praying as we should be praying the rest of the time. If we could only see this, you know, we're always on the brink of death and disaster. If we could only live like that, like eternity is in our eyeballs. We need to remember, we prayed it this morning. The devil is our adversary. And he's prowling around as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And at all times, we should be praying people. We should be praying people. But the Lord often delays the answers to our problems or our crisis so that we will recognize how much we really do need Him. We are not independent. We are dependent. And we need to live like that. We need to be praying people. God is not limited by the prayers of His people. But He works through our prayers to teach us to depend on Him totally. The indication from this text and the, really the rest of the New Testament is that this kind of intense, fervent, diligent prayer is done in the context of the local church. We see it happening over and over again in the book of Acts. This is corporate prayer. And that's where these battles are fought. And this is where these battles are won. And the question I have to challenge all of us, are we gathering together with God's people for the purpose of fervent prayer. And our ladies group meets on Tuesdays to, to pray together. And our home groups meet together to pray and to study God's Word. We have corporate prayer here early on a Saturday morning to pray together. Are you connected? Are you praying with us as a church? Are you helping us fight this, this battle? We pray to demonstrate our faith in God. That He will do as He has promised in His Word. That He will bless our lives abundantly more than we could ask or hope for. And when we pray, we can pray with confidence. We can pray with assurance. We can pray knowing that God is sovereign. That God is in control. That He rules and that He reigns and that He will accomplish His purpose for his good pleasure. Prayer really is our primary means of plugging into God's power. And the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, are you living a powerful Christian life? 
Prayer is our primary means of overcoming Satan, of defeating him and his army. That really we are powerless against by ourselves. We have his promise that the fervent prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. Are you praying? And that leads to my last and final point this morning from this text. We see in verse 20 to verse 25, planned purposes. God's planned purposes. Look at verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. Because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of man! And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with him John, whose other name was Mark. In his closing verses here, Luke describes the foolishness of fighting God as he concludes the account of King Herod Agrippa. Remember, there was this battle here between Herod and God, and who wins? <laughs> who wins here at the end? You know, Josephus, he is a Jewish historian, an unbeliever, but an eyewitness to many of these accounts, and he actually records this account in his book that he wrote called The Antiquities of the Jews. And he gives an interesting parallel um, account of this event. He says that Herod put on a garment made entirely of, of silver. It must have been very shiny. And when the sun's rays hit this garment, it was so magnificent that the people were awestruck. And he says, either being carried away or perhaps to flatter him, they cried out that he was a god. And when he did not rebuke them, he immediately got a severe and violent pain in his belly, and after five days of awful suffering, he died at the age of 54. That's from an unbeliever's point of view, okay? But interesting, isn't it? Herod knew enough about God, about the Old Testament, that he should have seen God's hand in the deliverance of Peter, don't you think? He should have realized that he was actually fighting against God. But instead, he puffs himself up. Remember, he knew the Old Testament. He should have remembered Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. How Nebuchadnezzar was brought low to the ground and ate the grass on the field like, a, like an animal, like a beast. But instead, Herod foolishly accepts the praise of the people that were under his power. And he is puffed up. And notice... As a result, he did not give God the glory. What does God do? He uses just a, a simple, humble tapeworm to bring this 
this humanly powerful king and proud man to his grave. We see here the foolishness of fighting God. Now God always gets the last word. God always wins. If you oppose Jesus, you will lose. If you fight God, you will lose every time. And Luke closes this section by telling us how the Word of God continued to grow and how it continued to multiply. And then he mentions the return of, of Saul and Barnabas and, and John Mark to the, the church in Antioch. And this really sets the stage for the expansion of the gospel among the Gentiles. And we read about that next week. The first missions, the first missionaries that are sent from the church here in Antioch. And Herod and the Jews, they opposed God, they opposed the gospel, and they come under his judgments. And the apostles and the early church suffered much, and many died violent deaths. But what is happening in verse 24? The word of God is increasing and multiplying. And the writer of Acts, Luke, Dr. Luke, he had the perspective of time on, on his side. And, and he's able to, to look back and see how God's purposes are being fulfilled and how God's purposes are being accomplished. And I think sometimes we, we're stuck in the, in the thick of our problems. We're stuck in the, the thick of it and we lose sight of this truth. That we're not God. That God is sovereign. We can't see the end of the, the story. We can't see the end of the puzzle. And even now, if you think about it, we see Russia on the border of Ukraine. And we see the, the Houthi terrorists fighting the UAE coalition, not to mention the, the problem of this pandemic. It's hard for us to see that, that God wins at the end. God wins. It's difficult for us to see that when things look their worst. We don't know what God is up to. We can't see what God is up to. And from this passage, let us learn that God is almighty. That God is almighty. And His gospel cannot be stopped by any opposition. I want to read for you in closing a, a story of a missionary who I've mentioned before, John Payton. Whenever I am discouraged, I go and read autobiographies of missionaries who were faithful to the gospel. Who understood the character of God. Who understood that God wins. Despite their problems. And John Payton for me is a perfect example of this. Now John Payton, he was born in Scotland in 1824. And as a young Christian, he labored as a city missionary in the slums of Glasgow. And he felt God's call to take the gospel to a new island in the South Pacific where there were cannibals, fierce cannibals who ate humans. I mean, who would want to do that? But John Williams and James Harris, 
James Harris, another missionary, he made the first attempt to take the gospel there in 1839. But these two missionaries, they were, they were clubbed to death and they were eaten within a few minutes of their landing on this island. And Peyton knew this. But despite that, he and his new wife landed there on November the 5th, 1858. But on February the 12th, 1859, Peyton's wife gave birth to a son. But then on March the 3rd, she died from complications after childbirth. And then on March the 20th, the baby died. And of course, Peyton struggled with his grief. He struggled with his, his loneliness. And just before his wife's death, she, she said the following. She said to her husband, You must not think that I regret coming here. You must not think that I regret leaving my family. If I had the same thing to do over again, I would do it with far more pleasure. Yes, with all my heart. Oh no, I do not regret leaving home and friends. There were times I felt it in me. And then her dying words were, Not lost, only gone, before to be forever with the Lord. John Payton lived into his 70s. And he devoted his whole life to the cause of the gospel among these cannibals. And he experienced many of God's divine blessings and deliverances from them. And at the end of his life, he exclaimed, Oh, that I had my life to begin again. I would consecrate it anew to Jesus in seeking the conversion of the remaining cannibals on the New Hebrides Islands. A life not wasted. And whatever the cost, and whatever the pain that we may be experiencing, we need to live lives that count for God's glory. Amen? Amen. We need to remember at the end of the day, God wins. Amen? Amen. We need to remember that God is sovereign. Amen? Amen? And that the gospel will not be defeated. Amen? Let us commit ourselves to the cause of the unstoppable gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for showing us, Lord, even though this great and mighty King Herod thought he was so unstoppable, nothing could compare, Lord, to his destruction and the victory of the gospel here, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the church that was faithful to the very end. The church that prayed fervently. The church that experienced divine deliverances. Thank you for the faithfulness of this church. You're not doubting your character as they grieve the loss of their beloved apostle James. Yet calling out to you in a time of need, expecting great things from you. Father, may we learn from this early church. May we not just go through the motions as a church, especially in our prayer life, Lord. But may we expect great things from you and attempt great things for you, Lord Jesus. May we be a praying people who believe in the power of the gospel. 
And may you use us mightily for the furtherance of your kingdom. Not just here in the UAE, but around the world. Please, Lord, where we fail, where we have failed, grant us repentance today. That our lives may count for your glory. That we will live lives that when we approach you one day, that when we stand before you on judgment day, we will hear you say to us, well done, my good and faithful servants. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.